Walworth County, June 1856. An injured man is brought to a home in an all but abandoned town on the outskirts of the city of Burlington. The man, however, is not merely a visitor to the community. The man has been brought to this home to die. Suffering from numerous bullet wounds and trauma to his head, James Jesse Strang would succumb and die in this home in relative obscurity, much different from the life he was living just weeks prior. Loved by many and hated by even more, Strang's followers praised him as a prophet and bowed to him as their king, a reign that could only be ended in a hail of bullets ordered by the President of the United States. Welcome to Badger Bazaar. A murder investigation would lead police to the farmhouse of Ed Gein. Mass murder at Frank Lloyd Wright's Spring Green Estate, Taliesin. Now authorities believe the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, And thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this episode 21 of Badger Bazaar. I am your host, Scott Whitman, along with me, your other host, Mickey Sanders. How you doing, Mick? Freaking fabulous. How are you doing? Freaking fabulous. March Madness is in full swing. None of our teams are left. Now that everybody... I don't think I know anybody that doesn't have at least one member of their final four out sweet 16 hasn't even started yet i've thrown (laughs) i've filled out four brackets i threw three of them away already now that everybody's brackets are busted no time than the present to uh, curl up with a glass of wine a latte and listen to a little Badger Bazaar. Oh, I thought you were going to break into kind of... Well, we <laughs> have... We're going to use our sexy voices for the rest of this episode. And we do have a banger for you <laughs> tonight. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, yeah, I think th- this is a little... That's, uh, that was beneath me. <laughs> we have a little bit of a different episode, I think, than our past episodes. It's basically, it's kind of a bio, kind of a biography of somebody. It's not just one crime or one crime spree or the history of a place. It's it's basically the life of one guy. Cause Un- unlike a serial killer episode like Walter E. Ellis, who were covering major crimes that he did, which are kind of the emphasis, this is the bizarre, intriguing details of one guy who had a major impact on one specific religion and a lot of the people that were around him at the time. You'll want to stick around for this one. It is truly one of the more bizarre stories we're going to talk about probably ever on this podcast We have, as always, a number of personal appearances coming up this spring and summer. I'm not going to lay those all out every time we talk, but again, 
Be sure to follow us on social media. Check our Facebook. Check our Twitter. Search for us on those social media platforms. Still working on YouTube. That's my bad. And all of our dates will show up right in front of you if you'd like to come see us talk. One more thing of note. uh, I get asked much more frequently as time goes on, can we give requests? Can we send in requests for cases to cover? Of course you can. Uh, we have a couple in the hopper right now. We're working on Tom Monfiles, which is a big one in Green Bay. We'd appreciate it if you do. I of mean, course. we may not get to them right away, obviously, but we'll put them on the list immediately. Working on uh, Slender Man is another uh, pretty popular request, I think. I want to do that one. We may do a, that a little differently than normal. Um, and then we have a couple that we are checking in on Taylor County. So, obviously, if you have something that you want to hear, if you want us uh, to talk about something, Go ahead and email us, uh, hit us up on social media, find us in person, whatever you like, send us your requests. Don't stalk uh, us. Those, No. We're not that popular yet. Maybe I shouldn't be able to say that. Subjects you'd like us to cover would be sufficient. So anything that you want, uh, anything that you might be thinking of, go ahead and don't ever be too shy to, uh, to hit us up for that. Except for stalking. A couple of things to talk about here in the beginning. We have uh, a bit of an update on a case that we talked about last episode. That's a bit of a somber update. So we talked about uh, the missing case, the missing persons case of Ronald Henry in Grant County. If you remember from the last episode, he's a 34-year-old African-American that was missing in Grant County. He had heard some dogs barking. He was staying at a friend's house heard some dogs barking in the middle of the night. He went out and checked on those dogs and was never seen again. So that was back in December. And here we have an update. Quote, body found of Grant County man missing since December. Family suspicious of death. This was published on March 6th. A couple weeks ago. So it says, quote, the body of a man who has been missing since early December was located in Ellenboro Township, the Grant County Sheriff's Office confirmed Monday morning. According to the sheriff's office, Ronald Henry's body was found in a ravine Sunday by a 14-year-old boy who was walking through the woods while looking for antlers. Deputies were notified around 3.20 p.m. and begun processing the scene. Quote, Ronald would do nothing to nobody to deserve what he got, Tanya McEnany said. She wants the truth of how her son died. We want answers, Henry's aunt, Leilone Jacobs, echoed. How did he just appear like this? We want justice. We want them locked up. We're not going to leave any stone unturned, Sheriff Nate Dreckman said. As with any death investigation, everything's on the table until you prove otherwise. So there is a possibility somebody could have killed him. Now, if you remember, they did do a search of about 2,000 acres when he was missing, a drone search, and they didn't find him. And where this body was found, of course, as it seems to always go, the body was found just outside of the 2,000 acre drone search. So, and it sounds a lot of these details sound reminiscent of our last episode, finally, like Jane Doe. But as we also talked about a couple episodes ago, it can take 40 years for them to realize that it was just a horrible accident, too. So they have to keep all paths open, but it does sound like it was a homicide. So, thoughts to uh, the Henry family. This is a case that we will continue covering. Um, certainly, now we have an, un, uh, an unsolved death in Grant County of a 34 year old, otherwise uh, healthy. Man, so that's something that uh, we'll be keeping an eye on. But at least they know the body's been found and they can start dealing with the closure of that. Another bit of news that came out this week that caught our attention, and this one is reminiscent of another case that we've been following up in the Green Bay area about Taylor Shabusiness. She doesn't go away. Ooh, 
who she's going to though ironically murdered her partner after a sex romp meth-fueled sex romp and decapitated him mutilated him and his mother found his head in a bucket now this is a different case takes place in Oshkosh, so not far from Green Bay. This one says, Wisconsin woman claims she saw a, quote, dark, shadowy figure, unquote, when she stabbed ex-boyfriend 19 times. A woman who allegedly stabbed her ex-boyfriend 19 times with scissors in front of their baby daughter claimed she was having a dream and saw a, quote, dark, shadowy figure. Morgan Lund, a 24-year-old city of Oshkosh woman, pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity, for the attempted murder of the father of her child stemming from an early morning incident on February 18th. I have a few questions about that. First, it seems odd that she used the scissors. Maybe you just grab the, the most pointed object you can find. But seeing a dark object and it happens to be your husband and doing it 19 times seems a little excessive. So it's almost like she's making excuses for something she wanted to do or she had a bit of rage or insanity. Just seems kind of peculiar how it all worked out. It says police arrived at the couple's Oshkosh home just before 8 a.m. to find a crying Lund covered in blood and applying pressure to the victim's wounds. Lund told cops she, quote, thought she saw something when she attacked her unidentified ex, whom she shares a child with and recently broke up with. Oh, I didn't know it was an ex. And was worried that there was something wrong with my head. The young mother claimed she woke up around 6.30 a.m. and took the baby into the living room where her ex was sleeping on the couch so the child could play. She had a muddled memory of something that might have been a dream or her imagination, but she thought the victim was yelling at her daughter, the court documents state. Lund told cops she then saw a dark, non-human figure, a phenomenon she's been hallucinating for six months, start attacking her ex. She allegedly grabbed a pair of scissors and began trying to kill the figure, but was, in reality, attacking her ex-boyfriend. The victim told cops he woke up to Lund attacking him and was able to fight her off. So he did live, but... I bet you there's some internal injuries going on. Yeah, you know, he'll have some scarring, that's for sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, 19 times, she had to have known it was a hallucination, and yet she's trying to stab it, and she stabs it that many times. You know, it, well, I don't, I, I, I don't, you don't, I guess you don't know if it's a hallucination. You, you, I, I don't understand how you think it's attacking your ex. She just had a quite a long bit of temporary insanity. Well, maybe not temporary insanity. Maybe, you know, maybe yeah, if, if you're probably, hallucinating like this, maybe, you know, there, there's six you know, months she's been seeing. Uh, it, yeah. I, I would, I would tend to believe that there's something more going on there, either substance induced or mental illness induced that causes. Something like this to or happen. Or both, like Taylor business. Yeah, no, you know, obviously, you, you know, you see that, and that's, you know, because we're covering that case and we're following that case. That's that's the case that that pops up in your mind. So, right. and it could know. be both, is what I'm saying. No question. Mental illness and maybe in a lot of cases, when people know they have mental illness, they run to drugs and alcohol to try to escape from it. Unfortunately. So hopefully we have a a full recovery by the ex here, and hopefully the uh, uh, the daughter has a daddy to uh, to continue to to grow up with. So when I used to live out west, uh, one of my favorite pastimes was exploring ghost towns. I used to, I used to live in Colorado. I lived in in several states out there, but I would I would just drive around in in, in the northern plains, Colorado, Mon- eastern Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, and it's just filled with all of these old 
turn-of-the-century houses. I don't think you ever told me that. Oh, it's, We've talked about your college days, but I don't remember you ever saying that. Yeah, so I, would, I would take days, and I would just drive up in... in By yourself. In the Yeah, that's the best way to do it, yeah. in my opinion, my opinion. Well, people can't argue with you then. You know, you're driving out in, in eastern Montana, the you know the, the western Dakota, South Dakota, North Dakota, and there's just all of these these um, hundred plus year old houses that were were put up by by settlers actually you know from the from the east coast and from europe that came over here early 1900s late part of the uh, 1800s and these houses are are literal time capsules like you can walk in them there's clothing in some of the closets there's old sapped up and and uh, faded away uh, montgomery ward catalogs in drawers it's just it's fascinating to see some of this stuff so I used to do that a lot when I lived out west, and, and here I like to take my boys metal detecting quite a bit in kind of old towns out here. Wisconsin has a lot of ghost towns, by the way, a, a lot of them up north, a lot of them in the, in the western part of the state, the old mining, lead mining areas of the state. Because here in Wisconsin, we have, like I said, a lot, a number of ghost towns. One in particular was the scene of much of the story we're going to be talking about today. Now, in, in Walworth County, actually right on, right on the border of Walworth and Racine counties, just outside the city limits of Burlington, lies the remnants of a, of a once important settlement. Important enough that it was home to an American king, the only king ever to be coronated in the United States. Now, the town was called Voree, V-O-R-E-E, and it was the site of what some people still believe today, several angelic miracles, it was the home of a prophet who was appointed to lead the Church of Latter-day Saints, better known as the Mormons. Now, this prophet king was named James Jesse Strang, and he's one of the most fascinating personalities you've likely never heard of. Now, the Mormons are, are one of the most uh, misunderstood, maybe? Not understood at all. Sure. Religious factions in the world, and you know, and there's reasons for that, and we'll get into... Uh, some of that in a bit. Now, there's actually a show on Netflix right now that I wanted to mention. It's a limited series documentary. It's called Keep, Sweet, Pray, and Obey. And it's a really hard look into the Warren Jeffs story. Now, some of you may remember a few years ago, I think 2007, 2008, the story of Warren Jeffs, who was a quote-unquote prophet from the fundamentalist faction of the Mormon church in Utah. And he was, he was basically on the run, um, trying to escape prosecution for child abuse, because his followers would basically give up their children to him. So, you know, you hear a lot about this nasty stuff that, that people do, and this is how a lot of opinions are formed about the Mormons, right? Polygamy, obviously, which is kind of branded with the Mormon religion, that was banned by the Mormon church over over 100 years ago, 120 years ago. In fact, that was one of the reasons why he ended up losing some of his followers. Right. Now, there, there are still factions of the Mormon church. The fundamentalists, obviously, is one of them that still partake in that. So, and that, of course, is what gives you pop culture sensationalism, you know, shows like Sister Wives and such. It's not even recognized in, in uh, the U.S. legally at all. But, you know, th this is what is in the public consciousness with the Mormon religion. That's the Polygamy. first thing people think of. Sure. If yeah. you're Mormon, you have multiple wives. That's what I always have heard. But, but that documentary, if, if you're looking for to learn about Mormonism today, this is not ancient history. This is 2008. Take a look at that documentary, and uh, uh, it's a really good look at how these people get 
people to follow them and and to get to think of them as prophets and such. And that's not to talk, we're not talking about Mormons in general, just people who end up becoming these kinds of leaders, like even the Wacko and Waco and those kinds of guys who, Charles Manson, it might be. Sure, yeah. It's these kind of guys who, who find followers. Not We're not talking about Mormons being that way, just people who find followers. It's kind of animal them. magnetism, right. I guess it would be a little bit. And this is what James Jesse Strang was, was very gifted at. Uh, now, Strang was born in 1813, so we're going back a little ways here. Born in western New York, where so many of the early settlers to our state came from. He's born into a, a, a pretty respectable family. Uh, but he was always a sickly child. He was always uh, ill. And I don't think we know exactly what that was specifically. I don't know of anything that's ever diagnosed what it was, but he was always just a sick kid. Maybe a lot of allergies, but yeah, de- delicate health. And even the people who at some point would become his teachers would assume that that would meant he was mentally deficient also. So there was a lot of prejudice or stereotypes that were thrown at him just because of him seeming weak, which is ironic because later on he becomes quite the opposite. Now, he missed a lot of school because of this illness that he had, this kind of mystery illness. He himself said later in life that he believed that until he was 12 years old, he'd probably only been in school about six months total in his life that he had spent in a classroom. So much of his education growing up was self-taught, basically just by reading everything he could get his hands on while he was at home sick. Quote, the terms were usually short, the teachers inexperienced and ill-qualified to teach, and my health such as to preclude attentive study or steady attendance. The teachers not unfrequently turned me off with little or no attention, as though I was too stupid to learn and too dull to feel neglect, unquote. So he's like the runt of the litter. Right. They never so, gave him a so, chance. So teachers, a teachers just kind of abandoned him and just wouldn't pay attention to him. So maybe him not going to the classroom had something to do with that too. Or if you're just going to be neglected and left behind, um, maybe his parents just just let him stay home and and teach himself. Well, it sounds like Mother Abigail was known to be very tender with him, but also stringent and required him to document all actions and words while apart from her. So maybe that's another reason why he didn't leave home very often. She little controlling she maybe some mothering as they call it mm-hmm. she had a thumb on him and didn't necessarily want him to go anywhere but it sounds like he did a lot of his own learning on his own as well and, and his self-study was pretty successful because he was admitted to the new york bar as a lawyer at 23 years old so i mean that's 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 self-taught that's reading books you know that's no basically zero formal education and you become a lawyer at 23 with, with no support other than your mother just keeping tabs on you constantly so he had aspiration. So, and, and clearly the mental deficiency part that, uh, you know, people thought about him wasn't true. Now, as a child, Strang kept a diary, which is, is really a window into his ambitions um, and kind of life goals, even at that early of an age. He, he said he would spend long, weary days on the floor thinking and thinking. Quote, my mind wandered over fields that old men shrink from, seeking rest and finding none till darkness gathered thick around and I burst into tears, unquote. So he was, that's a profound statement right there and very poetic and articulate. So he was not lacking for intelligence. And like you said, he kept his own diary with many thoughts and aspirations showing his inner confidence. Well, and, and his diary, which we still have, by the way, I believe. I don't have it. We don't have it. <laughs> I believe it's at Yale University Archives, oh, so it, it still exists. So in, in his diary, he, he wrote that, 
you know, he believed he was brought upon this earth to be a significant world leader, akin to the likes of Napoleon or Julius Caesar. So he talked about his desires to be important. As a child. He thought there's no purpose on being in this earth if you're just a layperson, right? You need to be important. You need to be somebody that will be remembered. And the two people that he set his aspirations to were Napoleon and Julius Caesar, who were not leaders, by the way. They were rulers. Right, dictator types. And, uh, and that will come into play. And he fa- also fantasized about being part of royalty. And he talked about in his diary as a teenager about wanting to meet and marry the then Princess Victoria, obviously, would later become Queen Victoria. And and just to note in this diary we keep mentioning, it was partially written in secret code, a code that was not even deciphered until 100 years after it was written. So it took him a long time to understand what he was saying. Another thing to note is that by, by his 19th birthday, he wrote about regrets about already at that age, to not have having yet been appointed general or elected to the state legislature. And he considered that these were, as Scott mentioned, essential by that point in a quest to become somewhat of importance. He'd already put that much pressure on himself to be in those kinds of positions by the age of 19. So he's, he's disappointed at himself as a teenager that he still had not been yet uh, elected to the New York uh, state legislature. Right. So this guy had some goals. He had some aspirations. <laughs> he was self-confident, as they might say. Yeah. Now, the, the code that it was written in, obviously, is interesting here. That's foreshadowing uh, other things that come up. And, and as Mickey said, it wasn't deciphered until over 100 years out after it was written. It was actually deciphered in 1950 by his grandson. Um, and that is how we... It was partly written in code, a code that Strang himself invented. Um, and this is how we know, because of his grandson deciphering it, all of these massive aspirations and really, as Mickey said, pressure that he put on himself to succeed. Because if he didn't succeed as a, quote, important person, what's the point of, of life on earth? It's like he had certain stages he was supposed to meet as he aged. He also wrote of interest of a particular secret of the Freemasons called the Royal Arch Cipher. This was before he was of appropriate age of... 21 for joining the Freemasons, so he had all intentions of joining the Freemasons. The Royal Arch Cipher was was a code the Masons used to conceal the name of God. Described in an expose in light on Masonry, this was publicly available. This is where he learned these codes and used them in his writing diary. A lot of these ideas is where he got this code from. Now in New York, he did become a lawyer, an editor, a publisher, a correspondent for the New York Tribune, a postmaster, this is, again, this is no education. This is basically 100% self-taught. So this guy is getting experience and know-how, and he's going through the gamut, right? He's trying to get experience and knowledge of everything possible, really. And really, all these things would come to fruition for him later on as he, you know, implemented his grand plan. Because he wrote of a strong desire to serve his fellow man. And he was frustrated with being somewhat penniless, an unknown youth, and, and all this was preventing him from reaching this greatness. He Just to speak of some of the stuff that he was studying, as Scott mentioned, it said that he studied works by Thomas Paine and Constantine Francois of Chazelbeuf, that's French and I should know better, otherwise known as the Count of Volney. Paine, an American political activist that most people would be somewhat familiar with, he was a philosopher, he was a political theorist and revolutionary, and he is also the author of the, the book called Common Sense and the American Crisis. And Francois was a French philosopher, 
historian, orientalist, politician, and author of a book called Le Ruin. So these are people, as we've mentioned, that were in power and had great influence politically and elsewhere. So he was trying to reach these goals at a young age and reading all about them. Whereas most kids are just watching sports, being interested in girls, this guy had higher aspirations. So in 1836, he he marries his first wife. He marries Mary Purse. And they have a daughter in western New York. And he winds up moving with his family west. Right? And again, as so many people did in those days, they moved to Wisconsin. Specifically Burlington, as Mary had already had family there. Um, and they knew people there because a lot of the people in Burlington were from that area of New York. So that is why they chose to move there. Now, we do have to examine a little bit of why they moved out of New York. Along with all the other things that he was becoming, such as a postmaster, an editor, and so forth, uh, he was also a bit of a con man. He had mounting debt, uh, creditors were after him all over the place, and he had sold some land in Ohio to a buyer in New York. And when the buyer in New York went to find the land that he purchased in Ohio, obviously sight unseen, um, he couldn't find it (laughs) because it didn't exist. I've got a bridge for you. Right, yeah. So this guy obviously is pissed, comes from Ohio, comes back to New York, and Strang is actually arrested for this, as he should have been. But... I'm not saying, I don't mean to say in his defense, but it was basically sold sight unseen then. This is in the 1830s and 40s. Sure, things people, were a little different. People bought land to, all the time. It like was that. hard to right. travel and everything, but there's a bit to have been said about his salesmanship. Sure. That's a nice he, way to put it, right? And, and that will certainly come into play later as well. Now, you know, so he, he gets arrested for this, and while he's in custody, he escapes and he vanishes from Western New York. So he's a magician too. Of course. And the next thing you know, he's turns up in Burlington living with his wife's family. Now, everybody escapes to Wisconsin where (laughs) no one will find them. Obviously his reputation had something to do with why he left New York. And even a local paper in New York called him at the time, quote, the greatest scoundrel in all the land, unquote. And this is before James Strang did anything that made him known today. Right. This is before the story of James Jesse Strang gets told. He's already being called the greatest scoundrel in all the land. And that's ironic because he actually owned and edited his own newspaper called the Randolph Herald. Which he used to his advantage really his entire life. Now, working as a lawyer in Burlington, he did work as a lawyer in Burlington. Obviously, this is, this is the frontier, right? There's pioneers out here. There's not a lot of population so you're not going to kill it as a lawyer. So they were struggling, but he did, uh, you know, get some gigs as a lawyer. And he also thought he'd be working as a canal builder with his father-in-law. So Mary's father was already out this way, living in northern Illinois, and he was working as a canal builder. And so the goal here was to build a canal connecting basically the Great Lakes to the Mississippi River. But that was a scam, too, because his father-in-law was a swindler and took money as a contractor for work he never completed. So... You know, these, these people, these, these guys kind of, kind of attract each other. The other important thing here with the community that Strang found himself in, in Burlington, is that a number of them were recent converts to a new religion ramping up, Mormonism. And this is, by the way, after he was baptized as a Baptist, uh, because his wife was raised by a Baptist family and ministers. So 
that he did have that religion. He grew up being somewhat atheist. I'm not sure we mentioned, but he was also turned into baptism because of his family, you know, as often happens. But now, as Scott alluded to, he's going on a different path. He uh, he also worked as a Baptist minister. So again, as Mickey said, he's he's baptized as a Baptist. He works as a Baptist minister. But he himself considered himself an atheist, and he wrote about this quite a bit in his diaries and in his later writings. He talks about being a non-believer. Didn't necessarily have religion in his mind. His sister wrote about him raising his, quote, puny little arms up in rebellion against the Most High God, unquote. Now, the puny little arm That's the kind of family support we all need. Is, is a reference to his small stature. He was tiny. He was five foot three. And that's why everybody thought he was so sickly and he's, as a child and everything. He's bald. He's got this, this uh, bulging forehead people would talk about. Uh, he had a red beard. So, he, you know. He, not an intimidating man. Not physically. Not by physics. Yeah, not, not physically. He certainly right. was not. A lot has been made of his piercing brown eyes, though, which would. Intense, as I yes. said earlier, right? You know, like Charles Manson, they often said that about him, yes, too. Yes, so. yes. And, and he was, although he was small, he was very charismatic. Short man syndrome? It doesn't sound like it in this case, kind of, actually, does it? What is short man syndrome? Well, it's it's little guys trying to prove that they're just as big and, and powerful as anyone else. So maybe to some degree, but it, he came at it from a different angle than a lot of the people I know who have that. I think he was, I, I don't think it was, that sounds like somebody that would try to fake it to me like you're trying right. you're trying to make up for something right exactly i don't think he needed to he was very talented in being able to sway people and self-assured right right, right. He, he confidence is not something he lacked even right. though he That's, was five foot three right he's a little guy but he, he was a large man in his own mind right and i mean we can also tell by his kind of obsessive cravings to be important, as we talked about From before, so early on, right, and and talking about these 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 people that he wanted to be like, you know, idolatry obviously is frowned by Christianity, so he, he uh, was not following any kind of uh, religious pattern at that point. So he was convinced. This is the interesting thing: is he was convinced by some of his neighbors and family members in Burlington to travel to Illinois and to go see Joseph Smith preach. Now, Joseph Smith is was the founder of the Mormon Church and was thought to be, by his followers, a prophet of God, basically God's personified being on earth. So why did Strang do this? Why didn't an atheist agree to make a, you know, 300-mile trek? To Nauvoo, Illinois. To, to, to Illinois. Now, some people, you know, th- this is something that's debated quite a bit by scholars. Some people believe he, he had lost their older, their oldest daughter, so they, they, him and Mary now had four children. Their oldest daughter, which was five, passed away soon after they moved to uh, Wisconsin. So, you know, is, is this why he did it? Was he looking to fill kind of a spiritual void here? Which um, is, as we've talked about in some of our episodes, young death like that was fairly common. So, but that doesn't mean the parents don't try to fill a void as a result. Right. So, you know, he, he agrees to go to go listen to Joseph Smith preach. Now, you know, we should get into a little bit of, of exactly who Joseph Smith was and this thing he founded called Mormonism, because it's, it's central to who Strang becomes. And I'm thinking there's probably not a lot of Mormon connoisseurs listening today. I don't know. Maybe, maybe there are. No, Sister Wives does not um, make you a Mormon connoisseur. Because you watched a show about it, you are not an expert. It's had some entertaining episodes, I will... I will admit. Now, Joseph Smith was 
from the same place as String, from, from Western New York. He's actually born in Vermont in 1805, so he's a little older than String. But his family moved, and he grew up in Western New York. Now, they, they were from what's called the Burned Over District. It's referred to that because of all these fires burning in Western New York. Not literal fires, but movements, religious movements, Adventists, Seventh-day Adventists, spiritualism. This all started in Western New York at this time, right? But also activists and social movements like abolition, women's suffrage, modern feminism, and things like vegetarianism and animal rights. This all started growing. Things that are pretty common today, right? We think about these things as pretty normal today. So a lot of people just standing up for their rights or or just having different philosophies and and being able to get away with speaking it without too right. much detriment right and, and obviously we have joseph punishment. smith went on to, to to found the latter-day saint movement so we're, you know the time we're talking about and the place we're talking about is very important because people's minds are open they, right and this is at a time where that wasn't you i mean people were stuck in their ways way back when we we are more enlightened and open-minded these days and we still have issues as we all know but yeah these are times where you kind of just did what you were supposed to do, and yet all these things are uprising, which has kind of led us to where we are right. now, which is obviously a good thing. All these movements are starting there. People, like we said, people's minds are open. They're looking for, for guidance, maybe, and maybe they're a little prone to be gullible. Maybe. you know. Well, they, they and, just and, want to believe something different than what they already believe, possibly. So what Joseph Smith claims, or what he claimed in, future, in, in later years, is that one day in 1820... While he was praying by himself in a, in, a, in a wooded area near his home, so he's about, you know, 15 years old or so, God and Jesus appeared to him, told him his sins were forgiven, and all the other churches in the world had turned away from the word of God. So they're turning away from the gospel. And God tells Joseph Smith that he's going to work through him to prepare the world for the return for the return of God to earth. Now, as a legend goes, Smith tells one minister that this happened. The minister scoffs at it, says he doesn't believe him, kind of just shoes him away. And because of that, he didn't really tell anybody else. But then three years later, in 1823, he again, according to Smith's own word, he again is visited while praying, this time by an angel named Moroni, who, while he was alive, was a warrior for a a lost pre-Columbian civilization in the Americas. And before he died in battle, he buried golden plates on which were the writings of ancient prophets, including writings by Moroni's father, Mormon. So these plates are supposedly buried on a hill around, you know, the year 400 AD or so. Sounds familiar. Right. It will... Uh, and you, I don't just you, mean... You will hear this again. When when I've had a couple of hangovers that have made me see things that I didn't want to see, but I didn't necessarily have this calling, so I don't think that's what's going on here. But You, you never had the vision of God and Jesus Christ Well, maybe, to you. but I, they may have been trying to come and get me because I, I didn't want to be around much longer after right. the way I was feeling. So these ancient plates are supposedly buried on a hill right near where Joseph Smith's home was, you know, in 1823. And the angel told Joseph where to find those and bring those to light after, you know, being buried for 2,000 years. So long story short, and there's a lot that goes Sound into like this. like commandments a little bit, don't they? <laughs> so Smith, Smith digs up the golden plates, which were written in a language called Reformed Egyptian. And that, that's a language that nobody knew. It's not a real language. And he, obviously, Joseph Smith was the only one 
that could decipher these these plates. The chosen one to recognize this language no one else had ever seen. Right, and he was also the chosen one to find the plates, and then he was given a seer stone by the angel, uh, Moroni, to decipher the plates, which became what is known today as the Book of Mormon. And this was published in 1830. The Church of Christ was founded later that year, and he was able to convince many, many people after the Book of Mormon was published, that he was the prophet. And he built up a massive following all throughout the world. Actually, they, they purchased that city that I mentioned, Nauvoo, Illinois, which had been previously called Commerce, Illinois. They purchased that city in 1839 so that they could basically spread their word from that core, now, that the, nucleus. The issue was with Mormonism, once people kind of understood it and learned what was going on, they, a lot of the people didn't agree with it, right? They didn't believe that Joseph Smith was the prophet like he said he was. So they didn't like it in their community. And they were, you know, a lot of times Mormons were forced out in the communities that they were trying to congregate in. So that started in Kirtland, Ohio, and then they had to move to Independence, Missouri. And then they went on to Nauvoo, Illinois, which at the time was bigger than Chicago. Now we're talking 1844. So this was a decent sized city at the time. It was, you know, it became the, I guess, headquarters of the Mormon church uh, right on the Mississippi River. So Strang goes to Nauvoo, N-A-U-V-O-O, upon this this invitation by his friends. And he uh, goes, you know, initially to hear Joseph Smith preach. So he goes and he hears Joseph Smith preach, and he actually meets Joseph Smith, and he is then converted. February 1844, he joins the church. So he's actually baptized into the church by Joseph Smith himself. He quickly earned favor with Smith after only a short time of knowing him. They hit it off. As you alluded to earlier, these types of personalities tend to find each other. So now we don't have any record of of what was said in that meeting between Joseph Smith and James Strang. Wouldn't that be great to know? What, you know, you have an atheist who, who meets this quote-unquote prophet uh, and converts him to that religion. Now, was Smith that compelling? You know, was, was Strang kind of grasping at straws here, trying to find, you know, to, to maybe fill this spiritual void in his life? It is said along the what lines of what you're saying, Strang saw the business value of this religion. Exactly. Liking the associated lifestyle, figured with his charisma and drive that he could draw crowds and build a following. Exactly. So this was a real estate scam by James Jesse Strang. He figured with people. He figured that if he converted to Mormonism, that he could get Joseph Smith to tell some of his followers to come up to Burlington or, or to Voree, and Strang could buy a bunch of land there on spec and sell it to them. So Joseph Smith, which some people themselves would call a salesman, you know, at this time, he's one of the most famous people in the world. Joseph Smith is more famous than Abraham Lincoln at this point. He's a world-renowned religious leader, Has now, now has several hundred thousand people following him throughout the world. James Strang, who is an atheist, wanted to be that himself, waltzes into this guy's city, comes right up to him, meets him, and gets baptized into the religion that Joseph Smith just invented. February 25th, 1844, personally baptized by Joseph Smith himself, as we mentioned. Becomes an elder in the church, 
all within 24 hours of getting there and starts taking his followers into his city and starts selling them land. This gives you a, a little bit of insight into... Sales pitch. ...who James Jesse Strang was. So, at the behest of Joseph Smith, supposedly, because according to James Strang, Joseph Smith asks him to go back to Voree, set up a Mormon settlement, and he will send his people there. Exactly. So, he sets up this town called Voree, right outside of Burlington, just to the west of Burlington, which supposedly means Garden of Peace. Right? Nobody knows exactly what language that is or where, that's, where that meaning comes from, but James Jesse Strang said it means Garden of Peace, so that's what everybody went with. Now, Voree quickly starts to grow, right? The numbers uh, of members of Mormons begins to grow, and, and obviously James Jesse Strang, who was an atheist a month ago, is now the leader of a, of a religious sect leading uh, these people in this town that he invented called Voree. Now, again, non-believers didn't really get along well with the Mormon church and Joseph Smith. You'll see that's a common trend that seems to happen. So Smith claims that he would establish a kingdom of God, and he would basically rule as a theocratic ruler over the entire earth. People didn't like to hear that, right? Smith promoted polygamy. And, you know, it's, it's your duty as a man to have as many wives and children as possible to spread the church. People didn't like that. And... Just to say it, everyone has a right to their opinion in our free country. And so, I mean, if they're not pushing it on you or shoving it down your throat, if if you don't like something that other people are doing because you're going out of your way to see it, I, that's that's wrong in my opinion. Just mind your own business and go about your own life. But it, it, the problem is if, if, if this is being forced around and shoved and, and, and thrown in people's faces, I think that's even more so when people are going to have an issue. So there is a fine line there. These these people do, do have a right to their own opinions if they're just living their own lives. But if you start enforcing it on other, on other people, then that's when people really kind of start standing up against it. So, you know, the, the Joseph Smith and the Mormon Church are bringing these things into a community that uh, the people that were already in that community did don't necessarily agree with. He also said that the church would decide which state and federal laws that they would obey. State and federal laws didn't really apply to them unless Joseph Smith said that they did. People who were already in Nauvoo and Independence, Missouri and Kirtland, Ohio, they didn't take kindly to this. So there was a lot of violence and a lot of unrest wherever Mormons were setting up shop. Who is this guy coming along here and, and, and affecting our rules that were just fine as they were? Sure. They, they, didn't, get, they didn't necessarily get along with Gentiles. Now, Gentiles are what the, the Mormons called non-believers. And that is a term that they used regularly. Well, you know, it's, it's believed Joseph Smith's bodyguard attempted to assassinate the Missouri governor. They burned down the local newspaper in Nauvoo, who would print stuff that was unfavorable to them. So it just kind of spiraled out of control. And you have these mobs eventually that were that were after this guy's head. Whether it's right or wrong, the point is people didn't agree with the way they were living their lives and they wanted them to be gone. So now, you know, Joseph Smith and his brother are eventually arrested. His brother's name was... Hiram. Hiram. They're, they're arrested and they're put in jail in Carthage, Illinois. Now, Joseph Smith at this time is a candidate for president of the United States. Again, very well-known guy. And they're holed up in a jail with his brother 
in Carthage, Illinois, and a mob busts in and shoots him dead, both him and his brother. Now here's the founder of this church, which is blowing up, right? Thousands of members around the world, hundreds of thousands probably by this point, within 15 years of him starting it. So this, this was blowing up. So here's this founder of this church uh, dead in nowhere, Illinois, but he never named a successor while he was alive. He never says, even though he was in hiding for some time, he always knew that there was a possibility of these, you know, mobs that were coming after him that would, you know, take him out. He never named... He knew there was a constant threat, and yet he also knew that he wasn't going to live forever. But again, when you have that kind of power in your mind, you don't necessarily think of that, but enter other people trying to take over that rule. Right. So so he never names a successor while he was alive. Or did he? The 12 apostles of Smith, yes, he did have 12 apostles. Uh, they remained in Nauvoo. Now, these apostles were people who, according to Joseph Smith, saw the plates that became the Book of Mormon, saw the plates that were given to him or, or that he dug up in western New York and were shown to him by the angel Moroni. And these, these witnesses signed a testimony saying that they actually did see the plates. And this was too obviously, the purpose of that was to validate what Joseph Smith was seeing, but nobody outside of that faction saw the plates, and Joseph Smith actually, uh, legend is, gave them back to the angel after they were deciphered. So the 12 apostles of Smith remained in Nauvoo, and now they're kind of clueless about what to do, right? Here's this this new religion in the world that's that's got a lot of members now, its membership is growing exponentially really fast and they don't know what to do because their leader is gone and they don't have anybody to take their place. So obviously a power struggle ensues and the hands-on favorite to take that power is Brigham Young. But uh, there were two others. There were, yeah, there, there were others who felt that they had a claim to lead the Especially, church Especially, well. right. But a month after Smith's murder, guess who shows up in Nauvoo? But James Jesse Strang shows up in Nauvoo, Illinois, and proceeds to claim that on the moment Smith was being gunned down, an angel appears to him and anoints his head with oil and said that he, James Strang, was the new supreme leader of the Latter-day Saints. And not only that, but that he had proof. He produces a letter that he says is from Joseph Smith, postmarked from Nauvoo, Illinois, nine days before Smith was killed, saying that Smith had a vision of an angel who said to him, quote, And now behold, my servant James Jesse String hath come to thee from far, and to him shall the gathering of the people be, for he shall plant a stake of Zion in Wisconsin, and I will establish it. And there shall my people have peace and rest and shall not be moved. And the name of the city shall be Vori, which is being interpreted Garden of Peace. And now I command my servants, the apostles and priests and elders of the Church of the Saints, that they communicate and proclaim my word to all the saints of God in all the world, that they may be gathered unto and round about the city of Vori. Preach on! Oh, sorry. So Vorwee, Wisconsin, which did not exist two months before, was now to be, according to this angel, the center of the Mormon church. Now, 
As we've mentioned, there's other people trying to claim this title or this position. As we mentioned, Sidney Rigdon, uh, his credentials would be that he was a member of Smith's First Presidency, which is the highest order. It's the highest governing body of the entire church. Now, there's also Brigham Young. Young was currently the president of Smith's Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, which was the second highest leadership body of the entire church. So is it is it possible that, again, just weeks from being an atheist, Joseph Smith proclaims Jesse Strang the leader of the LDS after one meeting with him? Brigham Young said... I got that kind of personality, don't you? Well, yeah. This would take quite the personality. I, I to, make to a do, mark on people. It might not be in the positive direction, but... And you are taller than 5'3", though. <laughs> I don't get that a lot, that I'm taller than someone, so yes... Now, Brigham Young said, uh, yeah, not happening, dude. And uh, Brigham Young said the letter is a forgery, and he excommunicates Strang from the church forever. So that didn't really go how Strang wanted it to go. But the church had a bit of a problem. Brigham Young had a bit of a problem. The postmark on the envelope was unequivocally valid. It's a genuine postmark, postmarked at Nauvoo, Illinois, nine days before Joseph Smith was killed. The handwriting was not Smith's, but Joseph Smith had a bunch of scribes that wrote letters for him. So that argument is not really compelling. And, and also, Smith's wife, Joseph Smith's wife, Emma, said that she remembers Joseph Smith writing a letter to James Strang not long before he was killed. So it's called today the Letter of Appointment, and today it is also at Yale University Archives. It's considered a forgery by most scholars today. And again, the two were 225 miles apart at the time of Joseph Smith's death. So how did that... So possibly the letter is a forgery, sure. But how did that postmark get on there from Nauvoo, Illinois? James Strang was in Voree the whole time. So how did that letter get from Nauvoo, Illinois to Voree? And how was that sent out nine days before Joseph Smith was was killed. And so if you think, well, James Strang just had somebody send that, well, then you would have to know that Joseph Smith was going to be murdered, which nobody did. Now, again, the letter is thought by most scholars today to be a forgery. The other thing you need to consider is, again, James Strang, even though he didn't have formal training in education, he had formal training in a lot of other things, and he was postmaster for five years. So if there's anybody that knew how to finagle this... And a newspaper editor and owner. He would have known how to finagle He can it. spread the word when he wants to. So even today, they say that, that scientists look at this, and they say the letter is a forgery, but the postmark is valid. Even today, they say that they have no idea if that is a forgery, how Joseph Smith could have done that. So a little bit of a discrepancy of what people believe today about that. What's, there is a, another out saying that maybe that was written by Joseph Smith. And basically what the letter was saying was not that you are the new leader of the LDS, but, you, but it's, it's basically saying, I want you to lead a faction in Wisconsin of the Mormon church and not necessarily giving him control of the entire church. So there's possibly an out there as well. But the, the letter of appointment is a bit of a mystery today. Because many in the, in the church believe that Smith was a prophet, right? I mean, it, Joseph Smith was known to be the prophet, the founder of the religion. The, the, next, the next leader, they thought, should be a prophet as well. And the letter from Joseph Smith and the vision James Strang claimed is evidence of him being a prophet, right? Even though all, all he did was say it, 
people were were willing to believe that that is evidence of him being a prophet and and Brigham Young and none of the other apostles part of the church ever really said that were part of, were were known to be a prophet power of suggestion and confidence evidently so now suddenly you have pretty prominent people in the Mormon church including 3 of the 12 apostles that are supporting string as did Smith's mother as Mickey said and many of his siblings his brother his three sisters along with a bunch of Mormons from Nauvoo that now moved up to Vori. People believed James Strang. Brigham Young didn't believe James Strang, and there's a lot of followers that did not believe James Strang, and they followed Brigham Young west. And obviously they traveled all the way to Great Salt Lake, and that's where they actually remain today, in Salt Lake City. So Strang builds up this utopian Mormon community in Voree, which is growing larger by the day as word gets out. So a short while after this happens... Strain goes to Nauvoo and says, Joseph Smith named me successor, and I'm going to go up to Vori and I'm taking a bunch of your followers with me. Another miracle happens. So Strain claims that he was shown, in a vision, the site of a hill in Vori, on which, under an oak tree, he would find ancient buried texts. You can see what he's doing here. He's completely paralleling the story of the Book of Mormon that Joseph Smith claimed. He's doing the same things right. that worked to get him in that position. Right. So he gets four of his followers, four of the people that followed him to Vori, and they go to this spot on a hill in, Vo- in Vori. And this hill is still there. You can walk right up to this very spot today. And they begin digging. And sure enough, they find three small metal plates with ancient texts on them. Now these two were claimed by Strang to be the testament of an ancient ruler in America named Raja Manchu of Vorito. So he takes Joseph Smith's story that made him a prophet, and he basically regurgitates it into his own telling. Again, these plates, the Vori plates are what they know are what they're known as today, are written in a language of code nobody has ever seen before. And only one man is able to transcribe them, and that man would be James Jesse Strang, because an angel give gave him seer stones to be able to translate them. Again, exactly paralleling the Joseph Smith claims. And these stones basically say that he who brings forth my words is a prophet of God. Quote, the forerunner men shall kill, but a mighty prophet there shall dwell. I will be his strength, and he shall bring forth thy record. Record my words and bury it in the hill of promise. Unquote. The forerunner men shall kill is a reference, obviously, to Joseph Smith. Now, again, this all sounds batshit cray-cray. Right? But thousands of people believe him. And now James Jesse Strang is the prophet that follows Joseph Smith. Well, if you speak of things confidently and, and act like you were there, and pe- people want to believe. I mean, our, we do that in our country when, when someone is trying to be elected president. If they have confidence and they speak what seems like from the heart, we want to believe. People want to be led. So... Someone with this kind of charisma, whether we like him or not, and and power to speak and articulation and just a belief that people want to be fed by, there's going to be, there's enough people out there that there's going to be people following behind. It really does make you wonder the kind of person he was to to see this man in person and to see the, the presence that he commanded, to be able to say some of these things that he's saying. You look at him up and down and go, how is this coming out of you? Right. But he, he knew... 
Well, I'm not trying to make a comparison, but Charlie Manson wasn't a huge individual physically either, and Adolf Hitler. But these were powerful forces. These were people that were, whether you agree with what they were doing or not, and most of us do not, and I'm including myself, these were not huge, intimidating men, but they had a force about them, strong personalities that people just wanted to follow, and that's, that's what it takes. Now the the plates today, what again, what are known as the Vori plates, are are lost. We don't. And again, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm not trying to compare this guy to Hitler or Manson. No, you're you're talking about the power that they had over people, leadership abilities, course, right? Yeah. Exactly. Now the, the the Vori plates are lost today. We don't know what happened to them, which I'm kind of glad of because that means that we don't know that they were destroyed. You know, that means that there's a possibility that one day. Somebody could find these things in an attic, in a basement, you know, whatever. We just know that they're lost. We do, however... Like jo- the Ark of the Covenant. Sure. Something like that. We, we do know that James Strang did make facsimiles of them. So we know exactly what they looked like. Those facsimiles we do have today, so they can still be studied today. And even though, you know, years later, one of Strang's confidants said that, you know, they were actually, they were actually a cut-up brass tea cuddle and you know but hey let's not get in that let's, might let's be not a little get derogatory of, of anything but the, you know that this was one of his closest trusting confidants that years later said that well, people like to refurbish things yeah this was uh maybe they were just being this was resourceful a, this was a tea kettle people yeah. so you know still had a cool look about it i'm sure people are eating this stuff up in 1845 Right, as Mickey said, they they're looking for something. They're looking to be led. What are you doing in eighteen forty five? You know? I you, wasn't doing anything. You, you have a guy that commands a presence. You have a guy that is looking to lead, maybe more than that. You you're going to maybe submit to this person. So yeah. he's I'm sorry, and, and people don't necessarily wanna step up. They they, they want to have someone show them the way. So right. someone this strong in personality and ability to speak and articulate, why is this person so good at it? Maybe that's because they were meant to be this. I I understand a little bit why people might be convinced is the word I'm going to use. So Strang now is known as Prophet. He's becoming very famous. Vori is becoming very famous. Strang, who we talked about before, was publisher and editor of a newspaper earlier in his life. He now starts a newspaper in Voree called the Voree Herald. And he participates in the newspaper exchange system, which is basically newspapers sending their newspapers to other newspapers around the country, and they would pick and choose articles that they wanted to publish in their paper. So it was kind of like a beginning of a wire system. You know, that's how we got news from around the country to put in other papers, was you would you would just send your paper to other papers. So the other thing that James Strang was, was a master publicity manipulator. This is what he was able to do. Obviously, he wrote every article in the Vorey Herald or approved every article in the Vorey Herald. So every article that was going out to these papers around the country was very flattering to Strang, to Vorey, and to his faction of Mormonism. So a mastermind of spreading his word. He, he knew how to use every possible path to get his word out there. No question. He he was also allegedly 
received many other revelations, which weren't necessarily formally added to his doctrines and covenants, but they did concern such subjects as the baptism for the dead, building of a temple in Voree, Wisconsin, the invitation for Joseph Smith's eldest son, Joseph Smith III, to take position as a counselor in strength for his presidency, which, by the way, he refused, wanting absolutely nothing to do with Strain's organization at that point. These were all things that he wanted to address, but didn't necessarily add to his doctrines and covenants. The other thing about James Strang that helped him was that he was very vocally anti-polygamy. He was against plural wives. He stated many times and printed in his newspapers many times he did not believe in polygamy. He would not let it uh, permeate in his church. That helped them. That certainly maybe gave him a little bit of a, of a better outlook to people outside of the Mormon church than the Brigham Young faction, which um, was heavily into polygamy, which caused a lot of friction. And a lot of the other followers didn't necessarily agree with that too. So that particular belief kept a lot of people with him inside and outside of the church, as Scott mentioned. So now here we are, Strang you know, from 1845 to 1848 is waging a vigorous campaign to succeed Joseph Smith as leader of the entire Mormon church, of the the leader of the church of Latter-day Saints. He travels to all the big cities on the eastern shore, preaches, debates, he's publishing newspapers, he's writing news stories, editorials, reports of his travels. He repeatedly denounces Brigham Young as an imposter and actually does excommunicate him uh, delivering him over to the bufferings of Satan. So now you have Brigham Young excommunicating James Strang, and James Strang says, "Well, you know, f you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna excommunicate you from my faction of the Mormon. I'm church. the boss. Right. I'm gonna get rid of you. I'm the captain now. You know, he he's having many of those whom Young excommunicated. You know, there were a lot of leaders of the Mormon Church that Brigham Young himself excommunicated that were now kind of defecting to James Strang uh, and his faction of the Mormon Church. Now, what they were doing is they were proposing to Strang, in effect, to recreate Nauvoo at Voree. As Mickey said, they wanted to build a temple, and they wanted to lay the basis for a community by devising a secret order that would govern the Strangite kingdom, and that's what they were called, the Strangites. So, you know, they, they were devising a secret order to govern the Strangite kingdom of God on earth, is what they called it. Now, the order would be organized along feudal lines with kings and queens and such. So along these feudal lines, they would have noblemen, viceroys, grand counselors, and above them all, obviously, God's earthly regent, the king himself, James Jesse Strang. And this was known as the Order of the Illuminati, an initiate to the Illuminati. So if you're going to become a member of James Strang Illuminati, you would kneel before Strang in a darkened room. You took an oath to uphold, sustain, and obey him and his successors. Your head was anointed with oil, and miraculously, according to the testimony of many, when your head was anointed with oil, it would radiate with a glowing halo. So... Now, to the man who was a teenager and saying that he wished to be like Caesar and Napoleon and was craving to be royalty and one day marry Princess Victoria, he loved this, right? He's living out his teenage dream, literally. Yeah, from before his teens even. 
This is where he thought he was always supposed to be. So now they have the city of Wari. They have their kingdom mapped out about how they want it to be, and they have the order of Illuminati in place. So now you need to round up saints, right? Now you need to go get more members. So he begins to woo Mormons everywhere. Again, he goes out east. He's in the big cities out east. He goes and he tries to get Brigham Young's followers, who had already started their their trek from Nauvoo to the west. And he also goes to Ohio, which was, again, the first community, the first Mormon community in Kirtland, Ohio. And he tries to get the Mormons remaining there. Now, obviously, when he goes there, he's not this nobody anymore, right? He has three of Smith's 12 apostles. He has his mother. He has his siblings. He's got his brothers and sisters. He's got all these... Smith's family. Smith's, right. He's got all these former leaders, former leaders from the church in Nauvoo, and he basically took the temple in Kirtland, Ohio. So now he has that. He has the first... So you can see what he's doing here. He's kind of setting a... a a game plan, a battle map, kind of, to get all these people in his pocket. Not a stupid man and always had a strategy. So he's headed to Philadelphia. He's headed to New York. He's headed to Boston. He's not screwing around. Now, outside people, again, Gentiles, they don't like this. They don't like this in Vori, or I should say outside of Vori. They don't want this here. They don't like this order of Illuminati stuff. They don't like seeing... You know, noblemen walking around. They don't like people acting like this. So they begin harassing newcomers to Vori. Because you got people from all over the world coming into Vori, Wisconsin. All over the world. Europe. Asia. And they're coming to become part of the Mormon church with James Jesse Strang. So now you have these outsiders, these Gentiles, which are not part of the Mormon church and don't like these Mormons here. They're stopping people on the way and they're saying, you're making a big mistake. This isn't real. He's a fraud. He's not a prophet, right? Your 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 heads are not really gonna gonna glow. It's it's olive oil and phosphorus. You know, you're you're not gonna have this you know glowing uh, crown above your head. This was a real estate scheme. None of this is real. But these people believe. So then the Gentiles want to start getting violent. What the Gentiles do also is they kind of uh, start playing Strang's game, and they start buying up land around Vori and trying to sell it to the newcomers coming to the church at exorbitant prices. So they're trying, to, they're trying to smoke them out. Well, and, and make some money off them in the process. Of course. So now, obviously, the Mormons, the newcomers to the Mormon church, they're being harassed. The same thing that happened in Ohio— same thing that happened in uh, Missouri, same that happened in Nauvoo. So they can't grow because the Gentiles are buying up the land around the town. But he also knows that he's got a number of defectors as well. People are leaving the church. They're coming here and they're, you know, maybe they're saying this isn't quite what they thought it would be. Maybe Strang's not quite the prophet we thought he would be. So they do have defectors as well. So Strang does recognize that because of the harassment that he's been getting from outsiders, because there are, it's, it's easy to leave, it's easy to defect. He's looking for movement. He's thinking that they need to find another place to go. 
So in the spring of 1847, Strang visited islands he had seen the previous summer uh, while on a trip to Buffalo in the northern part of Lake Michigan. The largest of these is an island called Beaver Island, 13 miles long, 6 miles wide. We may have mentioned that in our... We talked about this in... Uh, Michigan Triangle in episode. Right. Now, this land was fertile. It was well-timbered. It was an ideal spot for a utopian community. So from 1948 on... Headquarters moved to Beaver Island. We're going to Beaver Island. The kingdom, as they might say. So they found the islands practically a virgin forest. This was all wilderness, right? They named the rivers, lakes, bays, and hills of Beaver Island with biblical names. They this cl- was the second stake of Zion. They cleared fields, they planted fields, they laid out a network of roads, they erected log houses, they built a church, a jail, uh, a newspaper, a press, obviously, and they built the city. Well, there was already a city there, but they changed the name of the already existing city to St. James. And that actually, St. James still exists today on Beaver Island. Now, Which is strange because they changed a lot of the things back after... Although there were not a lot of people on Beaver Island at the time, the people that were there also, they didn't like the Mormons coming over and taking the land, right? Now, these were mainly Irish Catholics. They made their living as fishermen, and the Mormons basically came there and took it over. They changed the roads. They renamed everything. They treated everything like it was their God-given right to have. And basically, they said, screw you to the people that had already been there. So the Gentiles, they were not happy problem was they were vastly outnumbered. There were much more Mormons on that island now than non-Mormons. Also, people on Mackinac Island, just to the north, were not happy about this either because it interfered, it interfered with their trading posts that they had with Native Americans. Again, Strang just took it all over. So whatever commerce was going on on Beaver Island, which was actually quite a bit, if you think about it, lumber, firewood, fish, it was quite a bit of commercial activity going on on Beaver Island. Strang took it all over. With water involved, there's going to be a lot of exchange because mainland and a lot of production in between. And like you said, the kingdom of Strang came along and just usurped everyone else. Right. Now, Strang's wife, Mary, remember her? Did he? Right. Oftentimes, she was not with him. She would be at Voree when Strang was at Beaver Island or vice versa. She'd be at Beaver Island while Strang was at Voree, supposedly at Voree. Right. Or she, he, you know, he'd leave her in Buffalo with the kids. You know, it just, he wasn't around her and the children very often. Um, and he was oftentimes spotted with his own personal secretary, which was his 17 year old nephew, Charlie Douglas. But Charlie Douglas is not a 17 year old nephew. Charlie Douglas. What is, do you mean? Charlie Douglas was a 17-year-old girl in disguise named Elvira Eliza Smith. James Strang is changing his tune on polygamy. Now, looking at many of the ex-leaders of the Nauvoo clan and the Brigham Young faction that joined Strang, these, a lot of these people were excommunicated by Brigham Young from the church, or they had been excommunicated, excommunicated from Nauvoo earlier. The problem is there's a reason they were excommunicated, right? They were scoundrels. They were womanizers, they were drinkers, they were crooks, they were swindlers, much like Strang himself, really. Again, these people, as we've said a third time now, because they they find each other, these people attract each other. So if you look at the reasons why they're choosing Beaver Island for their new kingdom, yes, Vori was too small and they outgrew it, sure. They needed to protect themselves from Gentiles, sure. 
But there's also two other reasons. One, it's a lot harder for people to leave. Remember we had said that in Voree he was noticing a lot of people were leaving the church. It's a lot harder to leave an island. And also, what a great spot to headquarter a pirate organization than on an island. Which is essentially what he's been doing. It's exactly what he did. They were plundering fishing boats. Oftentimes families uh, around the area were complaining that their fathers and brothers were not coming back from fishing expeditions, and they never came back. So, you know, likely we're, we're seeing some pretty heavy crimes here that Strang and his pirateers are committing. Uh, houses all along the coast of Wisconsin and Michigan were robbed and burglarized. They knew it was the Mormons. They weren't necessarily shy about it. Many times they were caught and went to trial. They knew they were Mormons from Beaver Island. So Strang led uh, a pretty brutal pirate organization off of Beaver Island. Now he's really starting to revel in his power here. right? And in his mind, it's time that, that there be a coronation to make him the actual king. They had the order of Illuminati in place. So he told his followers that he again was given sacred plates by an angel. And these, as he transcribed them again, and he was the only one that could do it, these illustrated a monarchy system, which Strang was to rule as king of heaven and earth. Which, in his opinion, was a position that embodied royal attribute, making him not only a spiritual leader, but also officially a king. So they held a coronation. He's getting everything he wants now. So on July 8th, 1850, the only coronation of a royal on American soil in history was held on Beaver Island in Michigan. By his counselor and prime minister, George J. Adams. Now Strang, again, who's very, very little, <laughs> was wearing a long red robe at the coronation. It was witnessed by about 300 people, and actually to this date, anniversary of this date is still considered one of the two most important dates of the Strangite Church here, the second being April 8th, the anniversary of the founding of Joseph Smith's church. Now let's get on to the flamboyance. Well, he was given a crown made of paper and glass, if that's flamboyance. Well, he tried to be flamboyant. He sure did. Some people don't know what that word means, I guess. They, they took a chair and they covered it in moss. Flannel robe, as you said, flannel. Right. It is, it is Michigan, so flannel's necessary. But a king's robe, not necessarily envisioning that very well. They covered a chair in moss, and that was his throne. This, I mean, obviously, the robe, the, the throne, the crown made of paper and, and glass, and this is all patently absurd. Everybody the not on the island knew that this was absurd. He also wore a breastplate and carried a wooden scepter. I actually read that the crown was made out of tin, so way better materials than what you're speaking of. Whatever it was, it was probably made that morning. It was once <laughs> it was once <laughs> it was once described as a shiny metal ring. Sorry, quote, shiny metal ring with a cluster of glass stars in the front, unquote. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we're talking nothing but the best. This Prime Minister Adams, who, who was the coronator, he would be excommunicated by Strang just a few months after this ceremony. So things were going swimmingly. For bringing prostitutes onto Beaver Island. <laughs> I guess that's a reason. Now, he, he, as I said before, he is reveling in his power, and he started ruling with absolute 
power. It may have affected his ego. So what the king said, you did. And for a while, Beaver Island actually was thriving commercially. They were selling fish. They were selling firewood, lumber, right? They had an abundance of it. The servants were doing as they were told. Well, even though all this stuff was basically confiscated, right? String controlled everything. Marriage with Gentiles was forbidden. Drinking tea, coffee, and alcohol was outlawed. No tobacco. Clothing was regulated by the king. Females had to wear pantaloons under skirts. They're kind of these poofy pants that you would wear under skirts. That was ordered by the king that they had to wear those. Punishments oftentimes were being whipped by switches. So you were stripped from the waist down and you were whipped by a switch. And that was your punishment. And oftentimes if a woman did something unbecoming or if a woman was not wearing pantaloons, your husband got 39 lashes from the king's cronies. Now also, a percentage of your income obviously was required to go to the church, even if you were not a member. So if you were, if you were still on Beaver Island and putting up with all this, your income was confiscated uh, by the quote-unquote king. Now, obviously, because his attitude on polygamy has changed, it's now being promoted. That only caused greater hostility between non-members, and it basically came to the point where Gentiles were given 48-hour notice to either present themselves to be baptized into the church or their houses would be plundered and they would be forced off the island. So this is no longer, uh, you know, a quote-unquote king. This is a guy who's ruling with an iron fist. Dictator, and he, as a result, he even lost some of his true following, not just the Gentiles, especially with the polygamy ruling. People didn't necessarily want to agree with it. So Mary, by this time, had left the island, and she'd gone back with the children to Vori. Not that James Strang cared very much. He wound up taking at least three more wives. Eventually, he had five wives, including his first wife, Mary. His second wife, as you mentioned, 19-year-old Elvira Eliza Field on January on July 13, 1849. Separated from his initial wife, Mary, in May 1851, they remained legally married until his passing. He married his third wife, 31-year-old Betsy McNutt, on January 19, 1852. He married his fourth wife, 19-year-old Sarah Adelia Wright, on July 15, 1855. And he married his fifth wife, fifth and final wife, 18-year-old Phoebe Wright, on October 27, 1855, she was the cousin of his fourth wife, Sarah, and with all these wives, he fathered a total of 14 children. 14 children, all in, all due to God's will, right? Right. So now... Spread your important seed. Now, all of this unrest on Beaver Island and the, you know, the rampant piracy caught the attention of President of the United States, Millard Fillmore, who ordered Strang to be investigated because of all of this pirating going on and all this kind of unrest going on with the Gentiles. It was causing issues. Obviously, people on other islands like Mackinac Island on the mainland in Wisconsin and Michigan were complaining quite a bit. People were being killed. Houses were being plundered. Livelihoods were being taken away. So it became a big issue. In February 1851, uh, Peter McKinley, prominent island merchant and Eri J. Moore, disaffected church member, publicly accused Strang and followers of many crimes, pressing for arrest, which led to a lot of the things we'll be talking about, including treason, counterfeiting, trespassing on government land, cutting timber, theft, and tampering with federal mail, among many other crimes. 
Now, tempering a federal mayor—that seems to be one of the last straws—is his his marauders were out there beating up mail carriers who were delivering mail on sleds across a frozen Lake Michigan. I mean, they're beating up they're beating up these mail carriers and stealing the mail. They just took everything. I've heard that right? carrying the mail sucked, but I didn't know you get beat up by other than yeah. dogs. So in 1853, the USS Michigan, which was a naval ship, pulled up into the harbor uh, at at Beaver Island and arrested Strang and brought him to trial, as Mickey said, on charges of treason, counterfeiting, and trespassing on federal property. Now, what that had to do with is they were basically cutting down trees and selling the lumber on federal property, land that they didn't even they didn't even know. So they take Strang. So they take Strang to Detroit and they and they put him on trial. And twenty three other followers total were indicted for trespassing, obstructing U.S. mail system, and counterfeiting. Now, the problem for the feds in this scenario is that James Strang was a lawyer. Not only a lawyer, he's an orator, he's a conniver. So his defense was pretty much, you know what, we're being religiously persecuted. We don't mean any harm to anyone. Look at us. We had to run away. Right? We had to run away from the mainland to Beaver Island to be away from people who were attacking us. And technically, right? he never claimed to be the king of the island or any other land, but of his church. He, he, he said he was king of an idea. He all, right, and he also never claimed kingdom supplanted U.S. sovereignty over the island. So that's how he beat the treason charge, and he beat everything. He was acquitted. Because the, 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 he made it sound like the feds were simply persecuting them because they were Mormon and people didn't agree with their religion. And the jury, in less than an hour, agreed with him. All of the accused were set free in July of 1851 and all of their charges were dropped on September 29th, 1851. So he goes back to Beaver Island a hero. You know, so, so he, he came out smelling pretty good in this uh, scenario. So having achieved his goals as a teenager back... Uh, you know, to that diary written in code, right? He Maybe has, not as soon as he should have. I mean, he wasn't part of the state legislator by 19. Well, not by 19, no, but he... He was a little slow, but he did become king, I guess that so, makes up. So every he did become a person of importance, right? He At did least become, in his opinion. He did become a ruler. He did become uh, somebody significant. He, you're right, he did become royalty. And now an election was coming. And he ran for Michigan State Legislature. And because he controlled a large amount of people now, several thousand Mormons making up Beaver Island, and some on the mainland, he won his seat. So in 1852. So now, he Here. is now a Michigan State rep, and he has achieved everything in that diary he wrote when he was a teenager. Everything he wanted to do, he has now become. He served one full turn and part of another as a Democrat from 1853 to 1856. He introduced 10 bills total with five passing and just as some evidence to, to what he did being somewhat positively in, in people's eyes. He assisted in the organization of Manitou County, which included Beaver Island and, and many other areas in that vicinity. He also conducted a scientific survey of Beaver Island's natural history, which is published by the Smithsonian Institution, and that remained the definitive work on the subject for nearly a century. So while... A lot of the things he did were ego-driven. There were a couple of positive results that possibly came from it that lasted at least for a while. He, and he, he was also a staunch abolitionist. 
and and did fight for. This is 20 years before the Civil War was being fought. He was fighting for rights of African Americans. So, you know, that stuff needs to be said. It should be said. You know, it's not, he wasn't 100% self-serving. You know, there there were times where he was, um, when he did have power in, in a state uh, capacity that he was fighting for other people. Well, I think I think he understood that all people were equal to some degree. He just wanted to rule over them. So his ego constantly dictated his decisions, but I think he understood that everybody else was on the same page. That's what I've understood. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, like you said. Now, he goes from, from being brought up on charges of treason, being acquitted to being a state rep, and actually, you know, gaining some accomplishments in that capacity. But again, many in Michigan knew the story of James Strang. The U.S. District Attorney who brought him up on charges knew what was going on. President of the United States knew what was going on. All the Gentiles who were forced from their home knew what was going on. So Strang uh, had quite a number of, of enemies. Any person he believed that was a threat to him in the church, he would excommunicate or he would drum up you know, some kind of bogus reasons why, um, and have them humiliated publicly. Now, two of them, Thomas Bedford, who was arrested at his home and lashed 39 times with a switch because his wife was seen without pantaloons. Another reason Bedford was disaffected from the church was for alleged adultery with another member's wife. There was a couple of reasons that Strang believed he should be disaffected. And Dr. H.G. McCullough, who was kicked off the island and had to leave his family because Strang said he'd been seen drinking. Now, again, there... And and other alleged misactions, whatever that even means. uh, You know, an alleged... There's no trial here for these people, right? Strang himself was just gone to trial and he was acquitted. These people got no trial. If Strang said you did something, you did it. You put garbage on the ground, you're gone. So these two decided to do something about it. So people were getting fed up with the rule of James Jesse Strang. And these two started conspiring with several residents of Mackinac Island to end this man's rule. Now, it's not officially known who was all involved, and why would it be? But Bedford and McCullough were at the Capitol in Lansing, Michigan in early June 1856 apparently to um, discuss education funding on Beaver Island. Sure, sounds right. They were politicians. Sure, Jan. (laughs) So on June 8th, 1856, the USS Michigan was back in the harbor of Beaver Island, which was not all that unusual anymore because it had been making routine stops to basically check in since Strang was brought up on charges a few years earlier. So the captain of the ship, Captain McBriar, sent a messenger to Strang's home to request he visit on board. Knowing that they were gunning for him, Strang held strong, showing no fear, and he openly challenged them in his newspaper, saying, quote, We laugh with bitter scorn at all these threats. Unquote. He refused to employ a bodyguard or carry any kind of weapon with him for protection, knowing that these people could be coming on him at any point. So the USS Michigan is back in, in the harbor of Beaver Island, and the captain sends a, a messenger to Strang's house to go get him. It's about 6.30 or 7 o'clock at night on June 8, 1856. Strang comes out of his house, and he starts walking down the dock to assumably talk with 
the captain because McBriar wanted to speak with him, supposedly, on board. As he's walking down the dock, Bedford and another defector, Alexander Wentworth, opened fire from behind. Wentworth being one of the enemies of the church from the beginning. Now one bullet grazed String's head, one entered his spine and his lower back, paralyzing him from the waist down. And after walking closer up on him, Bedford put another bullet in his face, through his cheek, and proceeded to pistol whip him. They both ran onto the USS Michigan and claimed sanctuary, and nobody from the steamship, which was equipped with numerous military personnel, did anything to intervene. Not one person within view made any effort to warn or aid him in any way. The captain, even accused of complicity in or at least having foreknowledge of this assassination, there was no hard evidence proving that, but they even believed that he might have been part of it. Now, miraculously, again, here's another miracle technically, Strang survived that onslaught. He was taken to a home nearby where it was deemed that he was not going to survive. But he lingered for days, and he requested to go back to Voree. They put him on a boat, and they got him back to Voree, and he goes to his parents' house where he died a month later, on July 9th, 1856, 12 years to the day after receiving the famed letter of appointment. At the age of 43. That's always an amazing thing to me is when I, when I read about these cats, whether it's Strang or somebody else, and you see all the things that they do in their life, and then they... Uh, Joseph Smith was 38. Right. You know, I mean, they they're Younger started, than both of us, ridiculous. they did all this they, stuff. Whether you agree with it or not, these are accomplishments. They, they led people to a level that I don't even want to, to be honest, but that, I mean, they've accomplished a lot by this age. Ambition. Right. They're driven, which usually isn't always the best. Now, there is a kind of a romantic telling of this tale where James Strang goes back to Voree, goes to his parents' house, and his first wife, Mary, is there, and they kind of embrace before he he dies. None of that's true. She wasn't around. She had no desire to see uh, this man anymore. It's also said that refusing to turn Bedford and Wentworth into the local sheriff, Captain McBlair instead transported them to Mackinac Island. The men were given a mock trial, fined a dollar twenty-five, and then celebrated by the locals. So, so they're bought. They're brought to trial, right? They're brought up on charges. They're given a trial. They're found guilty, right? They're found guilty. Mock trial. And for their guilty verdict they're each as mickey said given a dollar 25 fine which did mean more back then but they never it wasn't paid it. significant none they didn't them, have to pay it, and pay it. so essentially again never punished for any of their parts in any of this as everyone turned a blind eye and just pretended it didn't happen well not only were they not punished they were likely they were celebrated as i said by the locals they were likely also set for life by one mr millard fillmore who right. wanted James Strang gone. Now, just a few days before Strang actually died, on July 5th, 1856, what has since been called the most disgraceful day in Michigan's history, a band of marauding Gentiles from Mackinac Island came upon Beaver Island, rampaged it, plundered it, burned the houses and threw the Mormons, which is not just a couple of them, it's a couple thousand of them which were there, basically threw them onto boats, 
and dispersed them along the Lake Michigan shores of Wisconsin and Michigan with a band of several hundred of them dropped off right up here in Green Bay. Later called, quote, the most disgraceful day in Michigan history, unquote, by Michigan historian Byron M. McCutcheon. They were just dropped off along the shores of Lake Michigan in the wilderness, left to fend for themselves. Now, Voree today does not exist. It's basically a few intersections outside of Burlington in the present-day town of Spring Prairie. There is a town historic site there. Several monuments and historic signs signify what did go on there. The local historic community, the Burlington Historical Society, the Walworth County Historical Society, treat this very well. They do respect it. They do remember this. It's not something that's been totally forgotten. As I said, there's, there's several monuments and historic sites there. Several stone houses built during that time still remain, including the house that he died in. It's still there, sitting right off the intersection of Highway 11 and Mormon Road, which is still called Mormon Road still. today. And to speak of Beaver Island, Strang refused to appoint a successor. Sounds familiar, just like Joseph Smith. Telling apostles to do best to take care of families and await divine instruction. Some of the followers have tried to keep the church alive, but his unique dogma, as they like to put it, requiring a successor to be ordained by angels made it very difficult. Those wanting to be led by a prophet would soon leave the church, and this included most of his followers, including all of his wives, eventually. And Lorenzo Dow Hickey, the last of his apostles emerged as an ad hoc leader until he passed in 1897. Wingfield W. Watson, high priest in the church, followed until he passed in 1922. Neither ever tried to claim his office or authority. And in 1860, several remaining, remaining Strangites helped establish the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is basically a different variation of what he was trying to say with some of the things having changed. Now, in, in Voree, what used to be Voree, which I guess now is, is the town of Spring Prairie, it is still the headquarters for the remaining members of the Strangite faction of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. There's still a church there. They meet somewhat regularly. I believe there's still pilgrimages there uh, every year from uh, members around the country. So it's not forgotten. James Strang's influence is still being found. He still has followers, right? There are still people that believe he was a prophet. The Hill of Promise is still there. You know, like I said before, you can walk right up to it. There's a monument where, you know, he dug in the ground and, and dug up the Vori plates where, uh, you know, they were apparently buried by an ancient American lost civilization. So, you know, again, Strang's followers still exist. There's it's, it's considered the second largest sect overall. In the Mormon church? Yeah. So, you know, again, they, they believe in everything he claimed. You know, Even though most of us don't know this name, it's not a household name, yet his, his reign still has a major significance and impact on that religion overall. And, you know, people people think that this was so long ago and it could never happen now. <laughs> it happens all the time. As you mentioned earlier. Look at Jim Jones. Look at Marshall Applewhite and the leader of Heaven's Gate in the 1990s. These are cults. These suicide cults. Mass suicide cults. The Wacko and Waco? Of course. I, and I, I don't mean to compare these, these gentlemen, no matter what their motives were, to like Charlie Manson or Hitler or any of these, but th these are the type of 
guys we might be talking about. But again, you, you look at guys like, you know, what we talked about, Warren Jeffs. Yeah. Right. I, there is, as, as I said before, there is a, a limited series documentary on Netflix right now about Warren Jeffs, who was a Mormon thought to be prophet today. This was in 2007. He had 74 wives. His father before him had that many wives. Now, you know, some of these wives, quote-unquote wives that he had, Warren Jess, were 12-year-old girls, 15-year-old girls. And he's engaging in relations with them while their mothers are in the room with them. Watching this, watch that documentary. You'll want to punch somebody when you do. Yeah, well, I don't want to watch it for that reason, and it's creeping me out, well, and I like this you, dark and you, twisted. You watch it because you realize that these people who have this pull on people are still out there. Look at the fe- look at look at the M- MSNBC and Fox News clans. What's the difference? They watch this stuff blindly. They're going to believe everything they say. I'm not, you know, whether you're on the Democrat or Republican side, that is your church. Look at Donald Trump. Donald Trump there's and there's a lot of similarities you can make between Strang and Donald Trump. I'm not talking about the things that they did. I'm talking about their uh, mesmerism that they have their leadership with their followers. Well, people have... There were shows on the History Channel comparing Trump to Hitler. Well, that's ridiculous. I it mean, is, but the point is you can see parallels if you want to see them. But Donald but Trump... It comes down to, as you say, charisma and leadership abilities and, and just convincing people that what you're saying is is a good way to go. Donald Trump famously said in a crowded room full of cameras, that he could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue in Manhattan and shoot somebody and nobody would, his followers wouldn't care. He's 100% right. What is that? Well, John Lennon said, we're, we're bigger than Jesus Christ. And people went into an uproar, but his point was valid. They were so popular that one of the common messiahs of our world, Jesus Christ, was more forgotten about and not as, as, as revered as the Beatles. People thought he was being an egomaniac. No, he was actually saying, what is wrong with us? So, I mean, religion and, and belief and people just wanting a f- leader, no matter what beliefs they represent, that's, it's strong and it's powerful. And our minds can be convinced by someone who, who has a charisma and, and a way about them to speak to that people will listen to and want to believe but what what causes this 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 dissidence that people display where you know what how do i word this like what what you know is different than what you believe right like i know he's not really a prophet i know he's not really a prophet but i cannot make myself not believe it to be true what causes that because what would everybody else say what would one of Warren Jeff's other 73 wives say if I say he's not a prophet? Well, first of all, there's no way you can know that somebody's mind doesn't know that he's a prophet. I mean, perception is reality. So whatever you're going through, if if somebody is saying things that you need or want to hear, whether the, whether the word prophet enters your consciousness or not, you're going to go, I like that. I want to follow that. Especially if you're hurting, especially if you're just looking for someone to lead you, especially if you're just looking for someone to to make you feel better about the things in your life that you don't like. 
we all want to feel good. We all want to feel happy. We all want to feel loved and safe. So the and and we all have different beliefs and perspectives and and our brains interpret things that we've been through different ways. So what your reality is and and the way you comprehend and and understand it as as true or not isn't necessarily the same for the next person no matter how rational you think it is. So if someone is saying the things that you want to hear especially if you're in a world of hurt at the time you're 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 gonna follow it and you're gonna believe it and heck if it makes you who you want to be then more power to you and who are we to judge it we we all look at things differently hopefully we can do it with a clear mind but i mean but and you know what you're saying basically is that these people are trying to fill a void in their life I mean, they're, they're the people who want to follow right, people that people are maybe are, a little looking off the for spectrum. something to follow. Right. And but maybe, maybe they're right and we're wrong. That that the problem is none of us are in a position to judge that per se as far as our own perspectives in our own lives. That's what I'm saying. People are free to make the choices that they want if they want to to enter into the to the fundamentalist religion. Since we're talking about that type of thing, and they choose to be one of those. 74 wives that's their life but we don't know what they've been through no that's that's true but i can still look at that scenario and say that that's not Not right for you not something of of a normal living scenario for most people normal means of the norm it doesn't necessarily mean right or wrong it doesn't necessarily mean the most mentally healthy way to do it either just because everybody else is doing it doesn't make it necessarily the best way I think you can see manipulation when it's happening. Sure. And I think without a doubt, these people are being manipulated. And people without take advantage, question. of course. course. And, and the, most of the time, of course. the term is predator. So, it, yes. And that, I mean, I, I think that's clear what's going on here in a lot of these factions is predator is a good word. You know, Strang, Strang had dreams and desires, right? right? He had goals and ambitions that he realized, every single one of them, he realized because he preyed on those who didn't. People who want to prey on other people find the targets that they know they can prey on. Right. And and possibly he was that kind of guy, but he wanted to lead people. And as, as I mentioned early on, he wanted to make a difference in, in people's lives. So just because we don't necessarily agree with what he was doing or his motives or think that he was coming from a negative place and just wanted to rule, I think... <laughs> As I think with a lot of politicians who enter that arena, their intentions are good initially. Unfortunately, it's once they have some of that power and they know this new life and this new situation, it it tends to change them not necessarily in a positive way. And unfortunately, it leads them down a darker path, even though that's not where they were trying to go initially. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Whether they wanted that to begin with or not, Maybe because they're human beings, they didn't have any way to stop themselves from going there. I think in life, you're either the hunter or the hunted. And I think if you don't make that decision, um, life will eventually choose for you. Amen, brother. <laughs>